0: Hi, I'm Cheryl and Hello, this is Cristabel.
1: Hello, this is Michael Horse.
2: Do you enjoy listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped the podcast? Have you picked up our book yet, Twin Peaks Unwrapped the book? That has over 100 cast and crew who have contributed to this book. And it's, I think people really love it. I mean, we also have community commentary where a lot of the community have participated in this. It's just a great book. We recommend you pick it up at bluerosemag.com.
0: Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. From the mind of David
3: Lynch comes a modern day masterpiece. So startling, so provocative,
2: so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is...
4: Brian Kazaska. And today we have a very special guest...
2: Brad Dukes, the author of Reflections, an oral history of Twin Peaks and the Brad Dukes Show podcast. Hey, Brad. Hey, what's up? We're going to talk Blue Velvet. It's the 30th anniversary. I believe it came out in uh, September 19th, 1986 was the actual movie was released. Here we are 30 years later. Blue Velvet is a masterpiece, a visionary story of sexual awakening. David Thompson, California Magazine. It will be attacked argued about and cherished for years to come. David Anson, Newsweek. Brilliant and unsettling, this is the work of an all-American visionary and a master
3: film stylist, Stephen Schiff, Vanity Fair. Blue Velvet, rated R.
4: Brad, I don't know if you know this. Um, I'm watching all these movies out of order. Um, (laughs) So for me, it is so hard. Like, I'm enjoying that. And I'm not... I, it's so hard to bait. When you watch someone's career, you, you, you watch them grow, and you'll see them use different ideas to go into something else. So I go into these movies, because we, we already recorded, recorded my home, home Drive, drive Fire Walk with, with Me, me
2: and uh, Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart. So... Yeah. so
4: it is tough to see kernels that would lead into a different a different idea, especially with Lynch. This is the first time I'm watching a Lynch film and I'm seeing all these little nuggets of Twin Peaks. Hmm. And a part of me was like, I, I, I looked at nothing about this film before watching it. I went in, I I didn't know what year it came out. I thought maybe I, I knew it came out prior to Twin Peaks, but I saw all these little tiny things that reminded me of Twin Peaks. Which was really cool. And um, so I actually got to see this reflection of going like it, these little tiny nuggets of ideas that were explored more in, in the show from this movie, which was really cool. And my first impression that first hour. I was like, what is going on? Like, It felt uh-huh. like I was watching a movie from the <laughs> 1950s. We have public domain films at work, and it reminded me of a very, like, uh, leave it to beaver yeah. sort of feel. And then you get to the <laughs> underworld. And it was, the- but that
2: even starts right away. I mean, when when with you with the have, bugs, with the bugs, yeah. right? You kind of start off with this, this prettiness, and then all of a sudden the guy has a heart attack. I, mean, I remember seeing it. And it's like wh- I didn't know what was happening to him at the time, and then you go deeper and deeper, and you realize I think they're beetles, they're yes. bugs and stuff, and it's like oh, this is a creepy. This is not a perfect yeah. place. Brad, what did you think of it? Like, do you remember when you saw this and what your your feelings of the film is?
0: Yeah, yeah. I was I think I was a junior in college the first time I saw Blue Velvet. I heard about it for years, and I always read that tagline that Twin Peaks was Blue Velvet meets Hill Street Blues. Mm. <laughs> um, but I remember I was a weird stage where I, didn't, I was done with VHS, and I just wanted to watch films digitally mm. and in widescreen format. So I waited until the DVD of Blue Velvet came out. And I remember watching it in my apartment, and <laughs> when Frank Booth shows up, I just remember thinking to myself, like, please, no one come back. And ask me what I'm watching. Like it, it, <laughs> it was so uncomfortable and so crazy and strange that I mean, I, I was re- really just watching in fear that my roommates would come home and be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I really, it really fascinated me. And it, it really was just another one of those steps into Lynch fandom that just made me more fascinated with the guy who wrote and directed it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so yeah.
0: And to this day, it's my favorite Lynch film.
2: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I was, I think the first time I saw it, it was probably in 1994. I was a freshman in college and I was taking a film class. And so we had to study this film for uh, oh, wow. the aesthetics and stuff. But it was interesting to be like, okay, the director is is taking uh, doing a close-up or they're doing extreme close-up with the bugs or you're doing yeah. a low shot or why are they doing a high shot? So we were analyzing the whole film, but I had already seen Twin Peaks by that time. And I think I'd seen Elephant Man. So I was like, oh wow, I could see another Lynch. That's cool. I know How crazy this film would be, I mean. And
4: did you guys feel watching this film, I was just like, his shots was so on point with this film. He did such a great job making you feel Feel like before it gets crazy like comfortable and like the shots very in the music it felt like one of those films those like 50s 60s sort of feel and yet he did such a great job and it's very well filmed i mean i can't compare it to anything other than what i've seen it's just nicely shot everything about it was oh, nice yeah. you know the colors really pop that's one
0: of the things that sticks with me and the blues and the reds, yeah the yellows everything is so vivid and uh, it was really spectacularly filmed, I thought. Lynch's sound man at the time, Alan Slett, he was based out of San Francisco. Uh, and, and Dwayne Dunham was working for Lucasfilm up in the Bay Area. And that's how he and Lynch first sort of got involved in, and Blue Velvet's when David and Angelo Badalamenti started working together. So you can trace a lot of things back to Blue Velvet.
4: No, nice. Yeah. And that was was that Battlemente doing the whole score in that film? It was. Wow. It, uh... I only recognize parts of his style, but when it was the normal when the film was kind of perceived as normal, like I would just say normal lynch, like nothing crazy was happening. It sounded it didn't sound like him. But then when the movie got crazy, the score had it made me feel of Twin Peaks and uh, later stuff.
2: Yeah. Isabella yeah. had some had pro- some problems uh, speaking and they wanted to get somebody like a vocal coach. Ba- Balamente actually came in to be a, like a voice coach to her. Wow. And, he, and while he was being a vo- voice coach he was actually playing on the piano and I think Lynch liked the sound. He's like, oh, we gotta use this. And I think that was really the start of their yeah. partnership that it wasn't like he was brought in to do the soundtrack. It was first that he was there to be a voice coach. Because
4: to- it sounds very straightforward like stuff you, a musical score you hear in any movie. But then there was that moments of him that the craziness peeking Mm. in and that's the stuff you're I'm so used to hearing in later stuff in Twin Peaks and then so I didn't even know he did the entire soundtrack. I yeah. thought like maybe he did parts, right. but not the whole thing. Yeah, he the and so that was thing. the beginning
2: of their partnership. And it would be you know three years later yeah. that they'd start working on Twin Peaks together. That's cool. And, but I think about the editor Dwayne there. It is really tightly edited. It's really oh, good. Yeah. But the film was originally four hours long, like Blue Velvet. It was yeah. so it was like they had to cut. I think the, the studio said they had to keep it down to two hours. Like it was, it was part of the deal. And so I think Lynch had it so it was like one frame under yes. two hours. Yeah, like one frame in a frame i mean i think of tv tv there's 30 30 frames equals one second and yeah. I'm, I'm i don't know is it 24 i don't know if 24 frames in, or in how many frames film. film but you yeah. think one frame <laughs> one frame short of two hours and but,
4: it's sort of like like you know he's doing it on purpose yeah. well one of the
0: interesting things is that was the first film where lynch had insisted on having the final cut mm. because they had done dune a few years earlier and if, you know anytime he talks about that he just You know, it was a bad experience for him and he just was like, I will always have the final cut on my film. I was watching the deleted scenes last night and really thinking to myself, none of this belongs in in the film. I mean, (sighs) it really, I think most of that, aside from the beginning and end would have taken away from the film.
2: There is a deleted scene near the beginning of the film where we, Sandy and her boyfriend, Mike, same yeah, as the yeah. boyfriend in Twin Peaks named Mike, <laughs> Yeah, but she's hanging out at her house and Jeffrey comes by and they have a conversation and then Sandy walks Mike outside and then we get to the scene where Sandy comes into the light and they have a conversation, uh, Jeffrey's and Sandy. But in the film... You, you don't get to meet Sandy until that moment outside. And I think that's beautiful that, yeah. that Jeffrey goes to the house by himself, and then there's that moment of, who is this girl? Yeah,
0: that's a great shot. And now that I think about it, it's like, yeah, that's the perfect introduction to Sandy.
2: Right. And it's like, especially because the idea of, like, there's there's this whole theme of darkness and, and love and light and Robin. And I kind of think that, okay, we start in the darkness, and all of a sudden this beautiful girl comes into the light. Yeah, And it's almost like, I think... Maybe Jeffrey is falling in love right from you know first sight and stuff. Yeah,
4: but. he's like uh, maybe not fall, but yeah, he's lusting after her
2: or whatever. <laughs> maybe yeah. other deleted <laughs> scenes, I think there's things where Jeffrey sees a, a girl almost getting raped and
4: oh, at a party. They're at a college. She's at a, like a college party, and he stops yeah. the date rape. Oh,
3: yeah, Stupid cat.
4: Hey, leave her alone. Jeffrey, he gets up out of bed and he starts crying. And I think this is the moment he's like, hit me hit me mm. and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to be you know frank frank and if that scene was kept in there about being at, at the party and stopping a date rape that could give us a little bit more of his personality but i don't think we needed it but mm-hmm. reading that does help me you know understand his character even more but what did you guys get out of that what What do you think he was crying about i think he's probably crying about a lot of things um, <laughs> Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's such an intense movie and you know, with Jeffrey getting involved with Dorothy, and then you know getting involved with Frank, I mean that's some scary stuff. I mean, if you got to put yourself in his shoes, if I had sort of you know invited Frank Booth into my life, I would really be you know feeling an internal crisis. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm I'd, I'd feeling some pretty serious trouble and something I need to get out of. Yeah, you know, there's also that morning he wakes up and Frank and his. His gang has just beaten the, the living tar out of him. Mm. So it's uh, just a lot of in, intensity going on.
2: Uh, Jeffrey has a decision to make. He, you know, he he's kind of starts off kind of innocent, and his aunt says, D- "Don't go to Lincoln," which is Lincoln Street. Mm. And by the way, you know, we, the bad guy is Frank Booth, who Frank Booth he's, is the killer ki- of, of, of President Lincoln, Lincoln and stuff like that. But, anyways, the idea is that he starts off innocent, and he he's he's curious about the the stuff part of town Mm. and he kind of gets more and more into that world and he gets to a point where he's making decisions on is he going to hit dorothy and he does actually hit her and then he's like he's kind of becoming frank Yeah, i think that's i think that's the fear that he's like you know he sees the evil and the bad in the world yeah and like i feel like just like laura palmer like she was kind of going down that dark side and in some ways by the end she was getting close to becoming bob
4: so i I looked at dorothy as laura palmer and in the script she ends up committing suicide. That's how the original oh, story oh, ends. Dorothy? Dorothy okay. ends up committing suicide. Like that's a bummer ending.
2: Yeah, that would have been horrible. I mean, yeah. Be, yeah.
4: Well. Reminding me of Laura Palmer because she was this person who was trapped by her her father and was being abused. And this she's trapped in this relationship because her husband And suddenly we're kidnapped, and this guy's raping her, Mm. and he's doing these horrible things to her. And then when she is being rescued, it's almost like she doesn't know how to be normal. Like she's just like, no, abuse me. You know, like it's weird. And she doesn't say, like, uh, rescue me. She just automatically wants to have sex with him. So it's like this weird, like she. It's almost
2: really that she wants, she doesn't want to feel anything. She's in so much pain. pain. That it's almost like it takes away the pain to either have sex or to be beat Being up. up it, like,
4: that's why it reminded me of Laura Palmer with yeah. the drugs. Laura right. Palmer was abusive to Bobby. Um, he was, she seemed abusive to other people that got close to her and she was taking the drugs and everything to kind of push down these feelings. And that's why it reminded me of Laura Palmer. And mm. then the ending with her letting herself go because it was her escape and then if you know we got in that ending of her committed suicide would that would have been her escape because she had no way out
3: yeah where
4: the ending of this movie is i think is better but that's why that's how i saw her connection with laura palmer almost
0: Mm. i think another interesting way that you can look at blue velvet is is by asking yourself what is jeffrey's real goal here because Mm. you can tell he's totally into sandy and yet he's completely pursuing you know some kind of relationship with Dorothy, all while deceiving mm. Sandy's parents. And I mean, he's inviting a lot of trouble in. And he's also playing two different women. So in that sense, he's not that sympathetic of a character.
4: Mm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you feel bad for Sandy. I, when... When uh, Dorothy shows up naked outside of the house, I was like, oh, no. Like, I was, like, mouthing, oh, <laughs> no.
2: Oh, no for, for Sandy? Well, <laughs> oh, no
4: for poor Jeffrey. Jeffrey's because in trouble now. Because she, she's naked, and then all of a sudden she's like, Jeffrey, is that you? Right. I love you. And then, you know, she's saying some bizarre things, and then you have... You put st- the disease in me. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> and then Sandy's just like, she... she uh laura dern's i'm pissed face yeah, oh, yeah. i'm disgusted with your yeah. face
0: <laughs> I, I like the mom's face i mean when when isabella is in the living room i mean the look on sandy's face and her mom is just sheer terror and yeah. jeffrey i mean kyle is such a great actor with, with his facial expression oh it's just it's so wonderful and awkward
4: <laughs> oh yeah i know and I felt bad for him. I'm like, oh God, because you felt comfortable that him and Sandy, everything was going right. They went to a party, they danced, they made out, and I'm like, yeah, this is nothing. What could go wrong? And then you know they're getting butted by another car, and I'm thinking, oh no, it's Frank.
2: And that's what that's what Jeffrey thought too. But it was
4: Mike. Yeah. Um. So then I'm like, oh, it's just Mike. And then all of a sudden she's naked. I'm like, oh no, it's just
2: Mike. Mike was ready to (laughs) beat beat him up too, though. I
4: I feel like he could have handled a fight with Mike. (laughs) he could have handled his own i think
0: <laughs> mike
2: is the man
4: <laughs> yeah mike is the man
2: <laughs> isabella i mean she, she
0: that what a performance mm-hmm. i mean i would love to sit down and just ask her how she handled some of that stuff oh yeah it's mean, yeah.
2: really intense stuff
0: really really crazy stuff blue velvet is a movie that really challenges you to think about your reactions to it and my reaction is i think this movie is cruelly unfair to its actors it was directed by David Lynch, the same man who made Eraserhead and Dune, and he's a talented director. You can see that here and scenes that have a lot of power. But he asked Isabella Rossellini in this movie to be undressed and humiliated on
2: the screen, as few actresses ever have been, certainly in non-porno roles. The more I thought about it, the less I liked it. A lot of people it's controversial because like why did she have to be nude? And you know, Siskel and Ebert, I think uh Ebert there is kinda like he basically is in his review is almost saying this is close to being a porno or something. Like he yeah. seems to be like he's really offended by Lynch having you know humiliated dis- humiliating her on her. film. Right. He's kinda like, You shouldn't do that to actors and and uh Roger, it's like uh, she Cisco's kind of basically yeah, so, saying Cisco's saying yeah. it's like she's an actress she decided to do, <laughs> do this. this she's willing to do this and in this uh, NPR uh interview with her
1: there's a, a scene in the movie where you're wandering around the street naked um tell me about that scene and what you wanted your body to look at it's not a vanity scene No not at all I mean it's it's not at all I uh, David Lynch told me that when he was a child coming back from school he saw a naked woman walking in the street and instead of getting aroused or excited at that sight he started to cry he terrified him and he wanted to convey the same terror. He wanted Dorothy to walk in the street of the of Wilmington where we shot the film, naked, and 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 convey the same sense of terror instead of the sense of sex appeal. And when he was talking to me, there was a photo of Nick Ott that uh, that I remembered, and it was a photo of a young girl um, in an. Uh, uh, in Vietnam, she has uh, been a victim of not attack and her clothes have been completely torn off her body And she has skin hanging and she's completely naked and she walks in the streets with the arms outstretched and is such a helpless gesture And I couldn't think of anything else that this absolute helpless gesture and walking like that if I would have walked covering my breast or covering myself it meant that dorothy still had some sense of pride still had something in her to protect her that woman had to have lost everything and so she had to walk completely exposed just saying help me it wasn't a sexy scene no, it was God, it was no.
2: horrific it's like you see this stunned woman it's like she hasn't she been through enough, enough? and now she's completely Naked.
4: Dennis Hopper mentioned, there was like the first scene and she wasn't wearing any underwear or anything. Mm. The whole scene was like the first time they're interacting and that's what it was. Uh. And Hopper, you know, he's just a madman. He's so intense in this film. (laughs) We could probably dedicate two days just talking about how crazy he was. Like, I, you can feel his stare through the screen. Oh my God. You know, he's staring in the back seat. Oh. That scene was crazy. yes
0: the, the casting of Dennis Hopper is one of my favorite Lynch legends because I think they had talked they had considered Dennis Hopper and they had heard just nightmare stories about his his state of mind and sobriety at the time mm. and apparently he you know he he sorted out his issues. And he called David Lynch and said, you have to let me be Frank because I am Frank.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David Lynch was really kind of scared of him. And it's like, I don't know if I want him uh, him to be a part of this. But yeah, uh, and he, he is amazing in this film. Oh, right? he
4: is. And Lynch was laughing during that scene when they first, you know, he's kind of, he's raping her. Isabel. And saying, Isabel, yeah, yeah. She was saying how Lynch was just laughing during that scene. And huh. she never knew why. And she had asked him after the fact. And he said it was just so ridiculous, oh, my. and I guess she said when she rewatches it now, she laughs huh. because it was so ridiculous, like for some reason, Lynch thought it was comic- not comical, haha, but maybe just absurd, like yeah. the whole thing was absurd, and that's why he thought it was funny,
1: yeah, so it was an
4: interesting story right. it is absurd. I don't know if I could laugh at it, but I guess no. if you're the actor or the director, I guess it's a little bit different,
2: yeah, maybe oh, so- man.
4: he wrote the scene, and he's like seeing it. Play out in front of them. Maybe yeah. it was weird.
2: At one point, David Lynch and Isabella did actually date. They were a couple at one point. Oh, that explains it. Then. I don't know, but they, I mean, I don't yeah, think, I don't think they
0: were. They had they had a relationship for a few years in the late '80s, and I think she was even supposed to be. Uh, a character in Twin Peaks. Josie
2: Packard. Um, yeah. Wow.
0: Right, right. And they also uh co-starred in a movie together called Zelly and Me. That's
2: right.
0: Which was uh, directed by Tina Rathborn, who also worked on
2: Twin Peaks. David Lynch the actor. I mean, <laughs> wow. And
4: I saw the word uh Gordon, was it Gordon? I saw I saw like Gordon, there's a detective named Gordon on a piece of paper and I thought of him. Oh, like Gordon there's a Cole. There, Gordon there, Cole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do do you guys notice, like, the weird little things when they go to the brothel? He's like, he goes, this is it. And the neon sign said, this is it. And I was like, (laughs) what? It was so absurd. It was cool. It was really kind of humorous. One of the
0: wonderful things about that is you can still go to that bar in Wilmington, North Carolina, and they have that sign out front.
2: Oh, my God. That's awesome. That's something. (laughs) There seems to be a family dynamics in the movie. Like, we have Frank, sometimes the father figure in a strange way. Mm -hmm. And he's saying mama to, uh, to Dorothy. And then I think Jeffrey... So, Jeffrey, after he has sex with Isabella and he slaps her the very next scene is he's holding on to a hat which is a little kid's hat yeah. and I feel like that's the end of his innocence at least in the beginning he seems like he's kind of the child and he's growing up to be a man but it seems like there's this weird family dynamic between the three of them yeah
4: Frank is like uh he's had he has m- mother issues I guess I don't oh, yeah. know yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I, but I feel like like Jeffrey was leading to become Frank like he was going on this path. It's interesting to yeah. think that like how Frank clearly when he when he kidnapped Dorothy, he must have first been watching her. Like he wasn't behind he wasn't in a closet like Jeffrey was. He was sitting in in the audience watching the performance.
4: I guess out of the movies I've listed that I've seen so far, I mean for Lynch for his villains on on screen, on te- on the movie side of things I mean, this is almost, he's more evil than Bobby Peru, I think. Almost. Did I mean,
2: yeah. he deranged? Yeah. It's, yeah. I think he's just so intense and scary, you don't know what he's going to do next. Like, he's capable of anything.
4: Yeah. But I feel, I feel like Bobby bobby was like almost like this villain, even up higher, turned to 11. It's like these bobby villains. Bobby can
2: restrain himself. I don't know. Frank seems like he yeah. has no restraints on. It's true. And I thought about that scene where uh, Jeffrey and, and Sandy are in the car and there's actually a church in the background and there's church music and Jeffrey goes talks about how, why are there people like Frank? Why are there people like Frank? Why is there so much trouble in this world?
4: there was our world and the world was dark because
3: there weren't any robins and the robins represented love and for the longest time there was just this darkness and all of a sudden thousands of robins were set free and they flew down and brought this blinding light of love
4: seem like that love would be the only thing that would
3: make any difference and it did. (laughs) So I guess it means
2: there is trouble
3: till the robins come.
2: If you could hold on to love Maybe that can conquer... Another
4: Twin Peaks sort of a uh, theme. Did you guys know, like, the the flame? They show the candle with the flame. Kind of, like, it reminded me of Twin Peaks with the fire. Yeah, yeah. And it was weird that you would see it briefly, and they cut away. And then we saw briefly, in the middle of the movie, uh, Jeffrey's dad in the hospital, but it was, like, all deranged. And it was interesting. We only saw his father, like, once or twice. Mm, and right. I, th- I thought maybe we'd see more of his dad. but
2: Yeah, maybe it was... I cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> Could there be a theory that this whole thing was a dream? I mean, there's definitely talks about daydream, like, and Sandy oh, dreaming, yeah. and then... <laughs> And then, like, there's a scene where Jeffries is dreaming about hitting or Frank hitting. And then at the very end of the film, his eyes are closed. First, we're in Jeffreys' ear. And we come out of his ear. And his eyes are closed. And he wakes up. And the Robin has come. That's what I was going to ask you
4: guys. That moment when he's laying there, I'm going to myself, oh, no. Was this, like, him daydreaming? And then, but when he saw the robin, and he's with Sandy and the, all the families together, the robin's eating the bug. Yeah, and then she says, a "Beautiful it's
2: robin a, eating that dark." Yeah, it's it's a strange
4: there. world, and I was like, "Okay, it's not a, a dream." Brad, what did you think? Did you think he was daydreaming at the very end?
0: No, I don't uh, interpret the film as a dream at all. Yeah. I uh, I kind of view that, and strangely enough, it's one of the few. Lynch movies that ends on a positive note mm-hmm. with you know, the the protagonist looking forward to a bright future. So it is very unique in that regard.
2: Yeah. And some people make fun of the Robin that it looks robotic and stuff like that. But I think Lynch has come out and say, No, that's supposed to be a real Robin. I but mean, it's it not looks like, fake. But he's not I know, but some people are like, Oh, it's not really a happy ending because it's a fake Robin, but it's like that's what they got. Yeah, yeah.
4: It's hard to train a Robin, you know? <laughs> it was full circle with the robins because you ha- we, we saw the bugs in the very beginning mm. she says the dream and the whole quote and it seemed that love would make any difference and it did so i guess it means that we're in trouble until the robins come mm. and then we saw the robin at the very end and it had the bug in its mouth right the, those clues i had a dream clues you know weird little things and then it would happen at the end sort of like a twin peaks with his dreams and stuff like that. So it was yeah. interesting. I'm like, why are they zooming into bugs? Right. And I was like, oh, it's like the underbelly right. of the town, you know? Yeah. I didn't
2: think about this until you just said this. But it's interesting that, yeah, we start off going deep, deep, deep under, you know, in the ground and stuff like that. And the end of the film, it's actually brought to our attention. A bird has to sweep up out of the ground and bring it up above. So now it's no longer – really the idea is that this, this evil, this bad thing's – we're all awakened now. We all understand that there is bad stuff. and But at the same time, there's this Robin that represents love can maybe conquer the evil, bad thing.
4: Yeah, and Jeffrey's brought the love of Sandy. You know, their love they had for each other. Well, they fell in love, I guess. And they're yeah. together at the end. So it's sort of their love. Conquered... Conquered all.
2: And this bug theme, we also have Jeffrey is like the bug man. He's the, he's the pest control. Like he 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 helps his father out. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's kind of funny that the first meeting with Dorothy is that he comes in dressed as a pest control, but the idea that he's gonna get rid of the bugs
4: i totally forgot about
2: that.
0: And, and he's going to have to have an awkward conversation with Sandy to explain uh, what happened with with Dorothy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think she knows what happened. How that cre- yeah, that cre- could
0: have been a, a button scene or something. Uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, there was that one scene with the phone calls. Like, I messed up. I'm so sorry. And she's like, I forgive you. It's like you yeah. yeah, just like that. You're just going to forgive. Uh, you know. Uh. Well, he, he he
4: went to the hospital with her, yeah, and he was sort of like I didn't know what to do. I don't think yeah she really understands what
2: he did. Do we want to talk about more about c- compare how it's similar to Twin Peaks in some ways? I say it's a lumber town.
3: Lots, lots, lots. Lumber in the pines.
4: Lumber did you guys feel like when Jeffries is in the diner, you know, and he's talking to Sandy? It sounds like a young uh, Dale Cooper. Yes. Cooper in training. Cooper in training. Junior detective. And I'm like, this could be a prequel. (laughs) If you just change all the names, this could just be, this could be the Dale Cooper book. (laughs) You know? His first case as a teenager, as a young man.
0: I completely agree with that. I mean, obviously, Kyle plays both characters, but... I mean, it almost does seem like you could change just a few little things, and it could be a Cooper prequel.
4: Yeah, yeah. Val Kilmer, I guess, was you know considered, hmm. and Val Kilmer read it, and he said this was it was too trashy for him.
2: Wow, well, he I said it was porn-
4: He was too. It was too <laughs> much. But was this the first time Kyle McLaughlin and David Lynch worked together? No, no. Was so, Dune Dune? Yes. Was. So okay. before this, but I feel like this. If Val Kilmer had played that role, would we still have seen Kyle MacLachlan in Twin Peaks? Would that have changed the history or You're no? Right. You know, because I feel like there's so much of Dale Cooper in this character, a young Dale Cooper. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe Lynch would have always thought Dale Cooper would have been that person right i don't know that history but it, it's interesting if Val kilmer right. had played it
2: and some people say that mark frost mentioned to david lynch like hey you should think of kyle as dale cooper okay. and stuff but yeah i it, that's a good question i mean yeah it, it, you, you could have looked at dune maybe and said He'd make a good Cooper, but definitely this movie, he feels more like a detective, and he's solving a case. And I do like how he'll, he'll sit down and be like, let's, let's unravel what we got now, and this yeah, happened, and there's two yeah. drugs, and there's this, and it, it's kind of cool. I mean, it definitely feels a little Cooper-ish. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: I did find out that Frank Booth, he says, uh, fuck, 56 times. <laughs> <laughs> he <he's> is, that, <laughs> is
2: that all? He says it
4: 56 times, and... There was an interesting story. Dennis Hopper claimed that David Lynch would never say the word fuck during filming. He would simply point to the line and say, that word. Dennis Hopper thought it was very peculiar that he wrote the script, but he wouldn't say the word. Mm. Dennis Hopper said it so much. By the end of the film, the word meant nothing to me. Mm. Like, it was just like... (laughs) You know, he was saying it so much. And I'm like, it was just weird sounding by the end. It was like, oh, my God. And it didn't dawn on me the reason he didn't try to shoot uh, Jeffries through the door was so crazy. He said, I only shoot when I see the whites of their eyes. Oh, yeah. So it's like, oh, he's a psychopath. He wants to see them die. He wants to see them. Right. But the violence at the end, David Lynch always goes all out. Because in... um, Wild, wild at heart, it yeah. was crazy. And this, you saw the brains going across the <laughs> oh, no. carpet. I mean, what did you guys <laughs> think of that ending with the guy just standing there? I didn't understand why the guy in yellow was standing there. Was he had a head wound of some sort? Yeah, but he was like so. out of it.
2: He definitely was dead. I mean, I think but he, got he was But sta- he
4: was like kind of, uh, and he's standing because he steals his gun and then he falls over.
2: I think he falls over when when Frank Booth shoots him. <laughs> Doesn't he? I think. He yeah, you're right. That. Yeah,
4: he shoots him again, and then he falls over. Right. It's like Lynch goes all out with the violence. He doesn't yeah. do violence, like, real violence, like that, a lot. Like it's not gratuitous. It's just like one part of that film has it, and it's just mm. out there.
2: Yeah, the Siskel and Ebert thing, how Cisco th- would say that, that Lynch likes to uh, kind of do a roller coaster, likes to play with your emotions, you know, like... I agree
4: with that, with sh- this film. Sh- yeah,
2: and I think he does that a lot. I feel like he does that in Lost Highway and other films where it's just kind of a... There's a moment where it's just so intense, and you're like, whoa.
4: Another Twin Peaks moment, uh, the random song, and then when Ben starts singing... Go to sleep, everything is all right. I close my eyes and I drift away. and I thought of um when Donna and Maddie James they had to record him doing that song in the living room and just you and me there yeah just you and me and then they, he I guess he couldn't sing that high and they end up not using his version of the song. Really? I thought they did. Or maybe they, there's a story behind that. Like he said, they didn't, they had him come in, and he, I guess David Lynch got kind of aggravated. He couldn't <laughs> hit the notes. <laughs>
0: I'm going to chime in. You know. All the listeners out there can read the story in my book, Reflections.
2: I like that. Yeah, yeah. So there it's you a mystery. Go, go, a mystery. go get it. If you, I can have a That is
0: my uh, completely selfish uh, plug right that's
2: there. So, I thought you had the story in that book. Yeah, I wrote read heard. it in your book, too. Yes. I put that story in the book,
0: but I, I convinced it from about a five minute version that James Marshall told me on the phone. It, it was so funny. I I, uh, I wish I could post a recording of it the way he told the story because <laughs> <That's laughs> awesome. it was really funny
2: uh, that's awesome so yeah go get I can't imagine anyone who's listening to this right now doesn't have a reflection or oral history of Twin Peaks
4: and that had the whole Pabst Blue Ribbon thing which I always find <laughs> is humorous what he's like what kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken fuck that shit Pabst Blue Ribbon! Fuck that shit. <laughs> Pabst Blue Ribbon. And then he's like all mad that it's going to get warm oh, and he I used glasses. That. And I loved all of that. I thought it was hilarious. Those those Heineken and Paps Blue Ribbon quotes
0: are, are just timeless. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I can't go to a bar or a party and see either of those beers and not just... You know, kind of smile to myself and want to say that out
4: loud. I know David Lynch isn't into um, the product whole placement. product placement, but there's a whole weird scene that felt odd where Jeff, uh, Jeffries is like, Heineken, you drink Heineken, and Sandy's like, Oh, I've never had a Heineken before. I drink Budweiser. And he's like, Yeah, that's the king of beers. And I felt so weird for a Lynch film. Do you guys know if that was some sort of product placement? It was just there? Like, why? I, I think that's just the, Lynch being Lynch. Lynch? Being was it was so. like poking fun at product placement maybe?
0: To me, that King of Beers line, just something awkward one would say on a first date. Mm. You yeah, know, yeah. Like you sort of maybe uh, searching <laughs> for something to say and
4: you should just not say it.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. But it just felt off to me.
2: I think on the Twin Peaks uh, references, it's funny. So Jeffrey finds the ear.
3: Yes. That's a human ear, all right.
2: Before he finds the ear, he's got rocks, and he's just throwing them I randomly. the same thing. And I'm thinking about like, the whole Cooper technique of throwing uh, rocks at a bottle. And Today, we're going to concentrate on the Jays. Jeffrey Beaumont. Yes, <laughs> I thought the same thing, too. And then we've got this blue curtain, or at least I, I've always thought of it as a curtain, kind of like Twin Peaks, when actually it, it really is the r- robe of uh, of The de- blue Dorothy. velvet. Yeah. yeah, blue velvet. And that's definitely a symbol that's been used throughout the whole movie. I mean, he uses it to gag people and uh, I don't know. They, Frank likes to take it. <laughs> Frank takes it everywhere he goes is a piece of, of her uh, robe.
4: Yeah, and he it's puts really, it in his mouth. Yeah. And he actually put it in his hu- her husband's mouth. Right.
2: At the end of the movie, he takes it out there. It's yeah. very bizarre. Another thing about tw- uh, related to Twin Peaks, the original pilot script ha- had like the opening scene of Twin Peaks a little bit more like Blue Velvet. You had like the milkman carrying a crate of uh, milk bottles, and and then there was like a yellow school bus cruiser going by. So there was all these like scenes, like I'm a guessing- parade. Yeah, and I'm oh, yeah. guessing it was probably maybe even too expensive to set up all this stuff for the pilot, mm. or what, but it definitely had a more of a vibe of feeling that Blue Velvet had, where you were kind of a... Americana. A, yeah. Yeah,
4: this old kind of feel to it. Right.
2: I never hear them really talk about it, but it definitely seems like they took ideas from Blue Velvet and brought it to Twin Peaks.
4: Absolutely.
0: When I,
2: re- I read that pilot
0: script to Twin Peaks a couple of years ago, the uh, last time I read it, and I just remember thinking, that is the exact. Opening sequence of Blue Velvet, mm. like it would be tough, tough to get away with that and open, you know, two back-to-back projects.
2: Right, same. and he
4: didn't do anything in between this and Twin Peaks, right? Was there anything in between? the The interesting thing about that
0: is uh, Dino De Laurentiis, the film producer, had financed uh, Dune and Blue Velvet, I believe, and his company went belly up after Blue Velvet, oh. and I think uh, One Saliva Bubble, which was the one of the scripts that Lynch and Frost wrote. Um, was going to be financed, and it got tied up with that. And also, I think, maybe one of the other reasons Ronnie Brockett never happened, yep. another uh, Lynch project. True. Um, and so that kind of tied Lynch up, and I think that might have been somewhat of a catalyst to push him towards television hmm. with Twin Peaks.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Um,
0: because I think there's a almost a five-year gap between Blue Velvet and Wild Apart.
4: Wow. Well, it, it makes sense, because this movie, if it was the original cut four hours... That would have worked on television to cut up the – and you know, it felt like he has this these long stories in him uh-huh. where a movie – they're like, we can't put this in the theater because we can't do a four-hour movie in the theater. We can't right. – you know, so I kind of feel like it, it would be like I want to tell long stories and without making multiple movies and losing my art. I can give you that in a TV show. Yeah.
2: Now, David Lynch had this idea for Blue Velvet. I think way way back in 1973. He he, even when he was working on Eraserhead, he started thinking about this, and he actually uh, gave two treatments of Blue Velvet to uh, the studio. and they re- they rejected both of them. They said go work on Dune, and so so I think he, it's something that he thought about for a long time, and it just yeah. didn't happen until after Dune. And then they were like, okay, let's do Blue Velvet now. But it's
4: I enjoyed it a lot, and I, I think I enjoyed it more because I saw these little Twin Peaks, you know, nuggets that would happen later on in the show. It's
2: The R-rated version of Twin Peaks. <laughs>
4: yes, the R-rated
0: version. I think Blue Velvet has got to be. Lynch's most accessible film to the mainstream. I think, looking at his whole catalog, Mm. it it seems like something that would be more palatable to a general audience. I think
4: definitely. I
0: think there is a Lynch audience. It's more of a niche group, but Blue Velvet to me feels like the most complete and most whole vision. Uh, That that is just my opinion.
2: Yeah, yeah, I get that. that. I agree. Yeah. yeah.
4: I I mean, it is the most straightforward, um, traditional. Uh, editing traditional, like, feel for the most part. Um, the characters are wacky and weird once you get into that. But I mean, for the most part, he does blindside you because you feel almost like, oh, this is like Lever the Beaver. Like, this is so, like, oh, it's so innocent. And then it is like a lo- <laughs> r- roller coaster. And then the middle of the film, it almost takes that full first hour. And it's like, bam, you're hit with just craziness. Mm. And then it just gets crazier. But it does, it is the most straightforward film. I do agree. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Maybe you think about Twin Peaks that, like, Twin Peaks starts off as, like, oh, it's wholesome, this wholesome town. And. Murders don't happen in this town, and nothing, you know, it's just a really sweet, good town, and, you know, he, there's no drugs, there's no nothing. And then Cooper comes in and he investigates it, and you start realizing there's shady stuff going on everywhere in this town. Yes. Everybody's do, backstabbing each <laughs> other, and there's, you know... Cheating on yeah. each <laughs> other. Right. It's not as wholesome as we thought. Yeah. Really.
4: Love triangles everywhere. And sort of, and Blue Valley, yeah, I mean, you brought this up, Brad. I mean, it's like, yeah, Jeff, he, he's with Sandy, sort of, but Sandy's with Mike, but... They kind of like each other, and yeah, it's like everybody was kind of with everybody, you know. Like
2: Donna, Donna was with Mike, but then she went with James. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, no, I was watching the DVD version of Blue Velvet, and uh, they were like, "Oh, we don't know if we have these deleted scenes." And all they were showing was still pictures of deleted scenes, and then we get to the Blu-ray where they were able to recover these these deleted scenes. I was reading Lynch on Lynch,
0: you know, kind of prepping for this, and Lynch was talking about a scene. I guess it's the first scene in the deleted scenes of Blue Velvet, and he thought it was long gone, hmm. and uh, it's really cool that they found all that footage. I think he was under the assumption it was completely destroyed up until, I guess, five or six years ago.
2: Yeah, it's not something. Wow, that's really cool. So, Brad, this is your favorite of the Lynch films. I mean, this is it is a really good film. I think it's it probably it, for me, it's probably up there as well as as one of his best. How do you think so- our society thinks of, of this film?
0: Lynch did get a best director nomination. Uh, at the Oscars for Blue Velvet. Mm. I mean, it, it really did strike a chord with a lot of people 30 years ago. Um, it's it, it, it's weird to think of it in terms like that, that that was 30 years ago. Mm. And and that film was 30 re- years removed from the 50s, if you think about it That's like true. that. I don't know. I mean, I, I watched it probably last month, and uh, everything rang true with me. It's got, you know a, an incredible villain. I think it's one of Kyle's best leading roles in a film. Hmm. I don't know, I I particularly am fascinated because it was Lynch's first work with Angelo and Dwayne Dunham. I I think Blue Velvet was a foundation for a lot of great things to
4: come. Hmm. Yeah, definitely.
2: It reminds me that this is the first time Julie Cruz is involved with David Lynch as well. I mean, I think she was with Angelo. She did sing Mystery of Love. Okay in in this and so that was the first time she worked with david lynch and then they would go on to um, make an album together which had mystery of love in it Kylo was naked in this film. I mean, like, oh, you just <laughs> see his butt, yeah, yeah, yeah but it's like, wow, <laughs> that's funny because I mean, I, <laughs> you know, we talk about Isabella and how she's nude, and there is some nudity for the, the man as well, yeah, and, yeah,
4: yeah. Like, Brad, I'm glad nobody walked in when you're watching it. Like, it's like, <laughs> God, there's certain parts, like, I watched it by myself, my girlfriend was working in the other room. And Blue Velvet, you hear that a lot. So I'd be singing that around the house. You want to sing it. When you Mm. say Blue Velvet... That song just goes right into my brain. It, it is a little bit tamer in this day and age, almost.
2: It is a little bit. I watched it again, and I was a little more numb to it. it wasn't as yeah. I'm still bothered by. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Daddy wants to fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so you I mean like still, daddy, like the way he is treating this woman and stuff. It's still very disturbing that you know, beating her up, and it's it's still pretty gruesome.
0: I mean, for me, I mean, you guys said it. I think it still ranks up in the top three, just most awkward, disturbing <laughs> sex scenes. Yes. Yeah. In- at least in all the movies I've seen, I am not a. I mean, I'm a. I love movies, but I haven't seen as many as you know a lot of people out there. But I still am just really hard pressed to think of, you know, more than one or two scenes that are just more uncomfortable than Frank and Dorothy in mm.
4: Blue Velvet. You know what? You know what? One scene almost tops that, though. This, <laughs> it's a Lynch film. It is a Wild at Heart with with Bobby Peru and uh, Laura Dern. Yeah. I can't remember her character's name. now. Lola. Lola. And they're in the hotel. Yes. And he just saying, he kept saying, oh, oh, fuck, me. fuck me. And it's like. He, he says it so much, and then he goes close up of his mouth and uh. close over, And I'm like, this is so awkward. This is so <laughs> awkward right now. Like, if if my girlfriend walked in and be like, what are you watching? Like, that is almost tops this, <laughs> yes. I think. I I don't even know which one comes for Like, the both are just so disturbing. And he's very good at giving us disturbing villains, mm-hmm. like these creepy guys like bizarre creepy guys yeah um there was one scene I want to talk about before we go I was pretty I was very impressed with it was a car chase scene which was edited very well and I was like wow a car chase scene and this like it, it, it was like good and then I read up I read about it so obviously the car stuff they filmed. You know, the way the car was moving, I'm like, are they? Re- is he really filming in a real car? Like, mm. it looks real. Like, you can see the lights and everything behind him. Well, come to find out, it was a stationary car, and they had people shaking it, mm. and they, were, they had, like, the guys on the crew were taking lights and running past the car to make it look like they were passing streetlights. That's funny. And uh, honestly, I watched it, and I went, this looks really good, like... I would never known they were in front of a screen and shaking it. The editing and everything I think was very well done to make it perceived as a real. Maybe like I'm like, is he? Is there rigged in the car? Like they did such a good yeah, job. Yeah, Just I like the movie magic.
0: Yeah, I love that. And speaking about cars, it makes me think of the Twin Peaks pilot with you know Cooper driving into town and with Bobby and Shelley in the car because those were. You know, those were filmed in actual moving cars with Hmm. Lynch, you know, crouched down in the passenger seat. That's Uh, right.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: It really, really fascinates me. Uh, You know, like you said, the magic of the movies and, and how they make some of that stuff happen.
4: Yeah. And he pulled it off really well, I thought. Brad, where can you be found? Yeah, you can find me
0: on Twitter at Brad underscore D underscore and if you want to check out my book, Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks, there's a link there. And then, uh, I've got a podcast, the Brad Dukes show that is also linked from there. And, uh, in the month of September, I should have a couple of very interesting guests.
2: Ooh, mystery. Can, we, can, can we ask, will it be
0: Twin Peaks related? Uh, one of them will. And okay. one of them is uh, will be showing up in uh, Twin Peaks 2017.
2: that was not in the
0: original Twin Peaks.
2: That's exciting. Yes. Can't miss that. Yeah. Thank you to Brad Dukes. And everybody, go check out The Brad Dukes Show with Dwayne Dunham, editor of Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. It's a great show. Some great stories. I really recommend it. Thank you to the amazing Silencio for their cover of Blue Velvet. You can get us at Twin Peaks
4: Unwrapped on Twitter. We're Twin Peaks Unwrapped on Facebook, which we're getting a lot of likes and a lot of feedback on there. And you can email us at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. And you can send us an audio clip if you like. Yeah, feedback
2: through audio, yeah.
1: Yeah.
4: We'll be back next week. And remember,
1: it's a strange world. Let me uh, spend a second here talking to you about Blue Velvet. Now, this was uh, what a piece of work this was. Now, that must have that must have been fun filming that, right? It was great. Because yeah. you would just act like a maniac all day, right?
3: That's all I did. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, what were you? What was that?
3: What was it? Yeah.
1: Well, actually. Frank was nuts, and he had a canister and a face mask, and he was breathing stuff. A lot of all breathing. A lot yeah. of breathing. Yeah. Probably actually, an asthmatic. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: It was written as helium. Uh-huh. Which would have made it really different David Lynch, who directed it, wrote it yeah. And uh, helium changes your voice And we had some there It doesn't get you high, though uh-huh. And so I tried it And I sounded a little like Donald Duck you know? <laughs> And uh, I said, David, it's really difficult for me to act With this, uh, you know, this helium So if you want to dub that voice in later, let's go for it But mm-hmm. right now, let me think of it as amyl nitrate Or nitric oxide mm-hmm. And he said, what is that? And I said, just trust me <laughs> on this one, yeah? yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's what I did. I used a lot of Lee Strasberg sense memory and went for it. <laughs>